Our epistle reading is also our sermon text from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Listen attentively to God's word. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Let us therefore keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Thus far the reading of God's word, these are the words of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to look at your word today, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to see Jesus, our Passover, sacrificed for us, and that you would make us more like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I would be remiss if I didn't take uh, this opportunity to say thank you to everyone for such the warm welcome that Rachel and I have had in our two weeks here that we've moved. So many of you have brought, uh, brought meals to us and helped us move in and invited us over and um, been so incredibly welcoming and made the transition so easy on us. And we just want to say thank you. Um, as we consider our sermon text this morning, it, it won't really do for me to separate it from the rest of the context of the chapter that it's in, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The whole of 1 Corinthians 5 is really a single unit, and there's a lot in this chapter that calls for our attention. Um, for example, 1 Corinthians 5 is a very famous case of church discipline that Paul is writing instructions on the church on how to do church discipline. And then there's also the case of high-handed sexual immorality that's dealt with in 1 Corinthians 5. A kind of fornication, it says, not even tolerated among the pagans. And with biblical sexual norms all but gone in our culture, this is a text where we would need to make mention of that fact. And then there's the strange case in the chapter of Paul being able to be present for the church discipline and church proceedings, even though not physically present. And what does that mean? And in all of my study, I was relieved to find that most of the commentators that I studied had the exact same interpretation uh, as I did, which is, I don't know. How is he able to do this? All of these things are in 1 Corinthians 5, and they are good and profitable, but I limited the reading to verses 6 through 8 because it is at the very heart of the chapter, and it is the very heart of what Paul is getting at with the Corinthian church, both in the chapter and in the entire book. If we were to go and read the whole book, 
we would see that the church discipline that Paul has in mind needed to happen and that the immorality needed to be dealt with, but these were just the circumstances. These were just the applications, the pastoral situation, if you will, of what Paul is dealing with in our verses, verses 6 through 8, which deal with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about and to us is something about the nature of sin. And he wants to deal with their true problem, which is actually arrogance and hypocrisy. One commenter described Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church like that of a father with a very gifted and very troubled son, which is something that God seems like he tends to do, is to, to give both great gifts and um, great struggles to the same people. He says that the Corinthian church was lacking no spiritual gift in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7. He appeals to them, saying that he is their spiritual father. Apollos, one of the most gifted teachers in the New Testament time period, ministered there. And Paul's love for the church is evident. And yet, with all of this great stuff going on at Corinth, when we read 1 Corinthians or when we hear about the Corinthian church, we normally think of it as that messed up church, the church with all the problems, the church with the disorderly worship, the church with all the lawsuits. They did also have that long catalog of problems. And so what I want to do with our time today is to comment quickly through the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5 so that we do see the context and then spend time talking about Paul's theological point with referencing the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and how that applies to us. So Paul Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 begins, he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles or the pagans, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken from among you. So Paul has st- always starts his letter with general theology, and now in chapter 5 he's making the turn to deal with uh, particular issues. And one such issue was this case of high-handed sexual immorality, a man in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Most likely this, does not, uh, this means his stepmother, and whether um, the... Uh, his parents were still married or divorced or his father had died is not, is not given to us. Um, but this kind of immorality was prohibited, obviously, in the scriptures, but also was not even named among the pagans or the Gentiles um, in, in Paul's day in Corinth. It was so awful that it could elicit a scandal in a place like Corinth. Corinth was a, um, a trade hub, it was a cosmopolitan place, and it was also a place of great libertine sort of ethics when it came to sexuality. The, the temple to Aphrodite was in Corinth, the goddess of love, 
and included um, cult prostitution. In fact, the term Corinthian girl was synonymous with prostitute in that day. And in the church, he's dealing with a problem that can elicit a scandal in a town like that. In the century prior to Paul, Cicero expressed disgust when mother-in-law marries son-in-law, calling it unbelievable. And even the liberal poet Catullus draws the line here, speaking of it as, quote, abhorrent. And so the problems that Paul is dealing with are massive. But worse than the immorality, and that was very bad, is the fact that the church refused to remove the man from fellowship. Verse 2. They had mistaken the nature of grace, the nature of forgiveness, thinking that grace allowed them to live at levels even lower than the Gentiles around them. And even worse than that, as bad as that is, is their attitude of arrogance. Verse 2, and you, he says, are puffed up and rather not have mourned. This, I think, is the heart of their problem and is something that we will return to. They are, the Corinthian church was, like a sore, Paul says, puffed up, arrogant, swollen. And with this letter and in this chapter, He intends to lance the boil in this case of arrogance and immorality and bring healing with the gospel. He continues in verse 3. For I indeed am absent in body, but present in spirit. I have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together along with my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul, though absent in body, is able to make a judgment about the situation because the facts of the case are not in dispute. In verse 1 he said it's commonly reported or it's actually reported among you. Um, And then here again in verse 3, I have already judged the one who has done this deed. He requires that the church gather in order to put the wicked man out of the assembly, verse 4. This is to be done in the name of the Lord, with Paul's spirit, and in the power of the Lord. And this is what I referenced before. Obviously, there's some debate, debate as to what exactly Paul has in mind here and how he is able to be present with them in spirit, or how the pow- they are together in the power of the Lord to put this man out of the fellowship, that much is clear, but then also to deliver him to Satan. But it's worth remembering our Lord's teaching in Matthew 18, dealing with church discipline. He says, when two or three, that is two or three witnesses, when the facts of the case are not in dispute, are gathered in his name, then the Lord is there in their midst. Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along also with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the facts are not in dispute. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses listen, to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. So you see how this is very similar to the process that Paul has outlined here. There's a high-profile case of immorality. The facts are not in dispute. Um, as Paul is able to hear about them from a distance and know that it's causing a scandal in the church, he says, together, together as a church. Jesus continues in Matthew 18 saying, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We can see the similarities that Paul says where he says that they are together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul is present in spirit and the power of Christ is present in the spirit. This putting out of the church, Paul says, is synonymous with being turned over to Satan, verse 5. Some simply take this to mean being outside of the church, removed from Christian comforts, removed from the Lord's Supper, and our assurance of pardon, perhaps under some spiritual torment, as Satan is known as the accuser. So, right, those, those who are outside of the church are constantly... Um, have a deep recognition of their sin before the Lord, even if they don't recognize it um, at a conscious level and are searching for the comfort that only Christ can provide. Perhaps putting this man out of the church would have a similar effect. Others have a more active and literal view of the destruction of the flesh in mind, something along the lines of the torments of Job. I don't think that Paul has the complete destruction of this man's body in mind, as the word flesh that he uses there in verse 5 can mean our physical bodies, but also refers to our sinful nature. We see that Paul had this, this man's ultimate salvation and ultimate good in mind um, in saying that he wants his spirit saved on the Lord Jesus. So don't believe that he was saying, put him out of the church so that this man can suffer under Satan and die because that would preclude his repentance, his being brought back into fellowship, his forgiveness that Paul has in mind. And all church discipline, and this church discipline had in mind as it should, the salvation of the one disciplined in view, even if recognizing that the intervening time will be difficult for him in whatever form that actually takes. And this is what God does for us. Those scriptures say that God disciplines us so that we would be partakers of his holiness, so that we would not be under the dominion of sin, so that sin would not have freedom to wreck our lives and to dishonor the Lord. The recovery of the sense of God's holiness in our personal lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our churches, is a desperate need for the day in the United States. How many ministries do we know about that have started well and some form of immorality was left unchecked and it grew and it festered 
until the entire ministry, the entire church, the entire family was ruined. You can read page after page after page on the newspaper of churches that fall and fail because the immorality is not done with. This doctrine of discipline, of helping our members walk in the holiness of God, of keeping the congregation pure in their actions, something that we need to recover in our day. It's always interesting to me in traveling to different places to see various churches around the world and and how they function and things that they do well and things that they struggle with. And the United States church discipline and a high view of God and a high view of his holiness is something that we struggle with that, um, that other churches just really nail. When I lived in Georgia, I was able to talk with some church leaders from Congo, and we were doing a Bible study on church discipline. And I was, I was a little afraid to, um, to really get into it with them because I knew it was, a, it was a place that our church in the United States struggles with. And I didn't know perhaps they did too. It would be embarrassing, and, and what do we say about it? And as we started walking our way through the text, um, we got to the end of our study, and I said, so how does this work in, in Congo? Do you guys practice church discipline, or are you more like the United States where we need more teaching and more direction with it? And they said, oh, no, we do this all the time. <laughs> no, this, and I said, all the time, what do you mean? They were like, oh, yeah, you know, um, just uh, just this month, we, we kicked a guy out. <laughs> and I said, what, what are you talking about? And, he, and they basically just walked through 1 Corinthians 5. They said, well, there were, these, there were these two members that we knew were not married. And they began leaving together. And we took church members to them. We took witnesses to them. And we exhorted them to repent. And, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to continue doing what we're doing. And so uh, the pastor came uh, to their house and said, you're not welcome at the fellowship anymore until you repent. And I was, I was taken aback. And I said, well, what happened? How did, how did that turn out? I said, well, two weeks went by, and then there was a knock on my door. In the evening as we were getting ready for dinner, and there was the church member said, I'm ready to repent. I've been out of the fellowship I have no comfort. My friends won't talk to me. We're done. I'm ready to repent. These are the kinds of things that if we will take the Bible seriously and the injunctions in the Bible seriously, um, that we can experience in our country too. The Lord knows what he's doing. The Lord is building his church, and he knows how to build his church. He knows how to keep his bride holy. I asked my friends from the Congo, so what, what do you do? How's, how's the, the man restored? He said, well, the next Sunday he comes to church, and in the middle of the service, I'm not exactly recommending this as a, as a practice, but he said, in the middle of the service, we just stop the service, and we have him stand up. And then the pastor says from up front, this is so-and-so. We all know of the immorality he was living in, and, and now he's repented, and I want you to welcome him back into the fellowship and everyone in the congregation says we forgive you God forgives you you're welcome he is restored 
That's what Paul has in mind when he directs the church to exercise discipline. Far from being punitive or mean-spirited, Paul has in mind, and all discipline has in mind, the good of the one who is disciplined, even if it goes hard on him in the meantime. In verse 6, Paul says, Your glorying, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. One thing that just to note about this passage is the, um, the enduring relevance of the Old Testament. The enduring relevance of the Old Testament for our application, for our life. When Paul is dealing with a situation that needs church discipline, he reaches for the Passover. And that, that just in itself should be something for us to take note of. Paul is very comfortable taking these individual situations and asking church members to live by theological reasoning. He says, the Passover lamb has been slain. Let us keep the feast of unleavened bread. Um, Therefore, church discipline. Or he will say, don't you know that we are the body of Christ? Therefore, don't be immoral with your lives. He's very comfortable taking theological principles and asking the church members to meditate on them, to think about them, and then live in light of them. In the height of understatement, Paul says that their glorying is not good. It's kind of like looking at a six-car pileup on your way to church and going, that's not the best Sunday. Your glorying is not good. Don't you know, he says, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin, in other words, grows. Tolerated sin, in particular, which is a point we'll return to. Christ, our Passover, has been slain, verse 7, and so we should keep the feast truly in fullness as Christians clearing out the malice and evil from our hearts, from our families, from our churches, and eating the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 8. He continues, I wrote, in you, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world or the covetous or the extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul had written them a previous letter, which means that our book, 1 Corinthians, really could be 2 Corinthians or, or 9 Corinthians. We don't know. There's a, there's a correspondence going on between Paul and the Corinthian church. And obviously, the apostles wrote many correspondences to individuals and churches that, that we don't have access to. But the Holy Spirit has kept those letters and those scriptures for us that were good for our instruction. But the Corinthians, in his previous letter, had mixed up his instructions. 
um, in their pride, they had become hypocritical in their application of his previous instructions. He said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And they took this to mean don't associate with the non-believers in Corinth. Paul clarifies and says, I didn't mean those outside the church. If you were going to cut yourself off from the immoral, the greedy, or the idolaters outside of the church, you would need to leave the world. The church is supposed to be distinct from the world and set apart from the world in our lives and in our character, but we are supposed to be in the midst of the world for the sake of glorifying God and discipling the nations to know, love, and obey Jesus. And this is where the Corinthians had gotten mixed up. Jesus prayed for the church in John 17, praying to the Father, saying, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus wants the church, he wants us to be in the midst of an unbelieving culture, different, distinct, protected from the unbelieving culture, but in the midst of it so that we can reach, can disciple the nations for Christ. Paul finishes the chapter saying, but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, an idolater, reviler, or drunkard, or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person." The issue here, of course, is not perfect sinlessness. The gospel that we preach, that Jesus died for our sins, that he came, that he's alive from the dead, presupposes that we have sin and that we will struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. And they're not advocating some kind of vigilante shunning practice if we happen to notice sin in another's life. But the context of the chapter is for those who are in repeated, open, and unrepentant sin, and for church members, for the church, to put that person under church discipline, and for the members to recognize that judgment. We're not to act in any way with those who are called Christians that show our approval of high-handed sin or rebellion. The inversion was the issue. Verse 13 says that God deals with those outside and we are far too often concerned to censure those in the world before dealing with the sin in our own life, families, and churches. So now you see this is the context of the chapter. It was an interesting verse when it was just read by itself. It's just a verse about the Passover. It's a verse about Feast of Unleavened Bread. But what Paul is dealing with in the chapter is high-handed immorality in the church. And when he goes to remedy this situation, he reaches for the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. 
So to get distracted by the church discipline and the immorality would be missing the point of what Paul is driving at and why he applies the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If he had simply wanted to tell the Corinthians, look, hey, I know that there's this relationship going on in your church, and this is something that's scripturally prohibited. You should know that. I know that you're Gentiles. I know that you're in Corinth. That's a debauched place, and maybe you don't know. But this is a kind of relationship that the Bible sanctions. He could have simply just reached for Leviticus 18 or Leviticus 20 and said, here, here's the verse. Um, this kind of relationship is out of bounds. So why does he reach for the Passover? Why does he reach for the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Why is that at the heart of the chapter? Rather, what the Corinthians were misunderstanding and what we can too is the nature of sin and who we are in Christ. Sin, in verse 6, is likened to leaven or yeast. It's the tiny microscopic bacteria that we put in bread dough to make it rise, as many of you know who make bread. In the scriptures, it's a symbol of potency. It's a symbol of growth. So Paul is looking at this um, situation of church discipline, but what he wants them to understand is the nature of sin. Guys, you have this situation going on in your church, but what you're really missing is the nature of sin. A little leaven can leaven the whole lump of dough, as we're told here, and all it takes is time. Sin starts small, is what he's saying. And sin grows. And you don't have to do anything. Sin starts small in your heart, and it grows. Our sinful thoughts do not remain sinful thoughts, but they become settled dispositions instead. Sin committed in secret does not remain secret, but it grows ever and ever larger in the life of the one tolerating sin. Sin, Paul says, will work its way through a whole life, through a whole family, through a whole church, and you don't even have to try. That's the nature of leaven. You just put it in the dough, and you walk away. Two, three, four hours later, the whole loaf is leavened. Sin will work on its own, silently, tirelessly, tirelessly, 24-7, until the whole lump is leavened, until the whole person, the whole family, the whole church is lost, ruined, eternally damned. Paul's looking at the situation of high-handed immorality in the church, and he says, as bad as that situation is, the problem is that you didn't do anything about it. And as bad as that is, the problem is your attitude about it. In The Mortification of Sin, the Puritan John Owen says, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out into the utmost of that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head? Every rise of lust might have its course would come to the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never 
satisfied. So the immorality was a problem, and doing nothing was a problem. But what had allowed the leaven of sin to grow in the church at Corinth to such an extent? I think it was something else in the scripture that is likened to leaven, which is pride and hypocrisy. Look again at verse 2. He tells the Corinthians, your glorying is not good. He says, and you are puffed up. You, he says, are arrogant. You are proud. And being puffed up, being arrogant, is a charge that the apostle will lay at the Corinthian church a few times in the letter. And as you read through the sense of the book, as you read through the entire book of Corinthians, which is kind of like getting a one side of a, a phone conversation. You can hear what Paul is saying to the church and you can hear echoes of what the church had said previously to Paul. You get the sense that pride and hypocrisy rather than gospel love is the issue that Paul is dealing with at the church. In the first few chapters of the book, Paul spends a lot of time talking about wisdom and knowledge, saying, I didn't come with wisdom, I didn't come with knowledge, I didn't come with great rhetoric, I just preached simply the gospel of a crucified and risen Christ, which is foolishness to the Greeks. And in the back half of the book, as he's dealing with other individual situations, he's going to reference this term knowledge and wisdom over and over and over again. In the whole book, he's dealing with people who are puffed up, who are arrogant, who are proud, who are putting themselves first in the congregation, who are putting themselves first in their spiritual gifts, who are excluding other people from the supper, who are so proud as to have divisions. Nine times in the letter, Paul writes to them with this phrase saying, do you not know? And then he gives them some basic theological truth. Do you not know, he says, that we are members of Christ? In our passage that we read, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know? Do you not know? Why does he keep saying that? Well, he's quoting the letter that they wrote to him. Where he says that they wrote Paul saying, we all have knowledge. We all know that an idol is nothing, Paul. In fact, the Corinthian, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we get a lot of their slogans that they had written to Paul previously. Here are some of our slogans, Paul. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. The stomach for foods and the foods for stomach. We all have wisdom. We all have knowledge. Why then, Paul asks, are you destroying your brother with food? And why, for our text is someone living in high-handed sin that even the pagans around you find disgusting. You have wisdom. Don't you know that the ungodly will not inherit the kingdom? Don't you know that we are members of Christ's body? No, he identifies the real, true problem in verse number two of chapter five, which is this. And you are proud. Paul writing, don't you know 
over and over again echoes what Jesus said to the Pharisees who likewise struggled with pride and hypocrisy. Jesus said to the Pharisees in the Gospels over and over again, have you never read? Have you never read about Moses? Did you never read what David did when he went to the temple? Of course they'd read. Of course they read. Many of the Pharisees had the Old Testament memorized. Reading is what they prided themselves on. Knowledge, wisdom, even theological knowledge is what the Corinthians prided themselves on. In Luke 12, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says to the disciples, Beware of the leaven, there it is again, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known. So I want you to just stop and think for a moment about the Pharisees and what kind of characters they are in the scriptures. They're the kinds of people that Jesus says that will devour a widow's home, will make someone destitute, and then for a pretense, make long prayers. They're the kind of people who will tithe out of their spice racks, going and tithing mint and dill, and yet set aside the requirement to provide for aged parents. The Pharisees were the kind of people who could order a hit job, like they did on Jesus, and then when Judas returns the money, make sure that it goes into the general fund and not the deacon's fund, because we don't want the blood money in the deacon's fund. Pride, the arrogance, will destroy your ability and uh, cause you to lose all sense of proportion. That's something that pride does. It causes you to lose all sense of proportion, which is why Jesus tells the Pharisee that they're able with razor-sharp clearness to see the moat in their brother's eye but miss the beam in their own. The Corinthians, likewise, in in the beginning of our book, were having theological debates. Some said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ, not noticing that they were carnal and factitious. Pushing their Christian liberty, they were destroying their brothers with food. And here, they're steadfastly refusing to eat with the dirty pagans outside of the church, all the while tolerating high-handed immorality within the church. It's a corporate exercise. What we see going on is a corporate exercise of washing the outside of the cup while leaving the inside filthy. What Paul is driving at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is that the sin outside of the church is not nearly as dangerous as the sin inside the church and inside your own life. Do you believe that? Here was a church with purity codes, theological debates, Christian liberty, and nevertheless had high-handed sexual immorality, lawsuits, pushing, carping, and striving. Because pride can lead you to hypocrisy and a blindness to the things that are most important. For those who underestimate the insidiousness of their own sin and magnify the sins of others. 
Do you see your own sin as most important? Are you looking first to your own heart? Paul says that their attitude, given the state of their church, should have rather been to mourn. It's the same word that we read in our sermon last week, blessed are those who mourn. It's the same concept. Paul says you ought not to be proud about your sin, but to mourn for sin. And it's the same word that's used, same Greek word that's used when someone is grieving a death. Paul tells the church to excommunicate one of their members. And when he does, at the very end of our passage, he uses a verse from Deuteronomy, used in Deuteronomy a few times, that, was, that referred to capital punishment. Excommunication, church discipline, in other words, is an ecclesial kind of death, hoping for a, a resurrection, a restoration. But sin causes death, and ultimately we should mourn over those who are put out of the church, like the father of the prodigal, who can say in the same breath, this my son was lost, and now he is found. This my son was dead. He was gone. He was away in sin. He was out of the family. He's dead, but now is alive. So the issue that Paul is dealing with is pride, hypocrisy, a toleration of sin. It's much deeper than a single case of church discipline. What is the solution? What does he reach for? This is why we limited our reading to verses 6 through 8. The solution then is to keep the feast. If sin is leaven, we should keep the feast of unleavened bread truly, with the unleavened bread of sincerity. What is Paul reaching for when he, when he tells them this? Well, as we read in our Old Testament reading, the original instructions for the Passover also included with it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As Israel was in Egypt under the bondage of slavery, under the bondage of Pharaoh and sin, and they were waiting for God to come and free them and deliver them, he gives them the Feast of Passover, the final judgment on Egypt, and he puts with it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the original story, there was a judgment of death coming from God upon the entire land, Israelite and Egyptian together. The Passover lamb was to be killed and his blood applied to the household. And God's judgment fell, as Paul might say in our verses, on those outside. God judges those outside, outside of the blood of the lamb. But there was a form of judgment inside too. God's people were to clear out all of the leaven from their houses down to the smallest germ. There was to be, in other words, a total break with sin and the culture of bondage and Egypt. For us too, Paul says, we are to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We, while not in complete freedom from sin in this life, 
are to clear our lives and our hearts and our houses and our church of the leaven of sin. Christ's death as our Passover makes this possible. And what keeps us from being introspective and, and striving is recognizing that the Passover had to happen first, that God's lamb had to die and his blood applied to the household and then they were to clear out all of the leaven. Later in chapter 11, Paul will write to the Corinthians and say, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. You see, if we will take the time to think about our own lives, our own hearts, our own church first, to clear out all the leaven, even in germ form, then we would not be chastened by the Lord, for God judges those outside. Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb of God, makes the break with sin possible in our lives. And we don't have to wait once a year, seven days, as the instructions we read said, for seven days you're to clear out the leaven. We don't have to wait once a year, seven days, one time in the liturgical calendar because Jesus Christ is slain and risen for us every single day of the year. Every day of our lives are to be a festival. They're to be consecrated to God. Jesus' blood applied to our households protects us from the stroke of divine justice and obligates and empowers us to clear out the leaven of sin in our lives. You really are unleavened, he says. See Jesus slain, the Passover lamb, and risen for you and know that you are an unleavened lump. This is exactly what we talked about just a few weeks ago. Paul always does this. He will take the theology, he'll say, Christ the Passover is slain. Jesus did die for your sins. Jesus is alive. The lamb's blood is on the doorposts. You truly are unleavened. Now live in light of it. You are unleavened, he says. Clean the leaven out. What old leaven do you need to clear out today? What do you need to purge from your life? Or remember it grows even from your heart. Are you discontent, lustful, arrogant? Are you angry? For God's people, it rather should be faith in Christ and then out with sin, even in germ form, yearly, monthly, weekly, daily, until glory. Christ our Passover is slain and risen. Keep yourself, therefore, from hypocrisy and pride. Do not let a preoccupation with the sins of others keep you from glad, faithful keeping the feast. Rejoice in faith at God's provision. Eat the bread of sincerity with gladness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that Christ, our Passover, is slain and risen for us. 
Lord, I pray for us in our hearts. Would you open our eyes to see even the germ of sin that you hate so much that you would send your son to die? Lord, we are grateful for your provision. We rejoice in the blood of Christ on our households. Lord, and we keep the feast with sincerity and truth. And we pray, Father, that you would clean our hearts, clean our lives, clean our families, clean our church. In Jesus' name, amen.